an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 50, which I am entitling Confessions of a Lapsed Podcaster. Life after God. It's just like that, isn't it? Life. Just like every life. And uh, it's full of joy and triumph, but also suffering and loss and some absurdity and some comedy and some tragedy. I've obviously been off the air for four months. And then two months before that, uh, I've taken uh, to calling this a hiatus, but it was never planned to be a hiatus. In retrospect, I think it was needed in my own life. I did the show more or less weekly for over a year, but then some pretty significant things happened in my life that at this time seemed like the kind of things you just roll with. But looking back, I can see now how impactful and all-consuming they really were. I just wasn't able to keep up with all of the challenges uh, between work and my kids and other relationships and challenges that came my way. Uh, Unfortunately, the podcast was one of the things that fell by the wayside. I've always intended to continue the podcast. I've, I've been wanting to restart it for a while. In fact, I thought I would restart the show in January, but it wasn't the right time. Then around the end of January, a young man came into the brewery where I work, downtown LA. He was visiting Los Angeles, and he had emailed me ahead of time to say that he was going to be visiting and could we get together At the time, it was the kind of email that I just rolled right past because the thought of scheduling an opportunity to meet with a complete stranger was just more than I could handle. But he said he would be willing to come by the brewery, and I'm there a lot, as it turns out. And so I said, sure, why don't you come by on a day that I'm there? And it turned out that uh, I was really, really busy that day. We were down a bartender, I think, and we had a really busy night. And I was mostly running around serving other customers. But in between times, he and I got a chance to talk a little bit. And he shared with me a little bit of his own story. And as he was leaving, he expressed to me how significant the podcast had been in his own journey and how instrumental the stories that have been told here and the interviews that we've hosted here with such interesting people had been uh, helpful in him constructing his own life after God. And I was really moved by it, not so moved that I was able to start the podcast the very next week, but moved nonetheless, and it stayed with me. Uh, So I'm happy to say that um, that nudge and a a number of others uh, from important people in my life and my own just personal desire to keep it going for my own reasons, which I'll talk about in just a minute, uh, I'm back. And uh, I, I know enough about myself and life not to make any grand promises, but I intend to be back for the next indefinite amount of time. Uh, I've I've always wanted to continue, but I've wanted to do it for the right reasons and with the right focus. 
My dream for the show was to talk about a whole range of topics from philosophy and history to art and music to politics and religion. The common thread has always been the shaping of a post-theistic or, or a healthy humanistic worldview. And we can't shape a new worldview by constantly rehashing the old one, even though that rehashing is, at some stages of our life, uh, very important. Personally, I'm not that interested in atheism anymore as such. I, I happily identify as an atheist and feel less awkward about it than I did even a year ago, but it's a label without meaningful content to me. Atheist tells you next to nothing about me. So while I'll definitely continue the X-Files segments, uh, sharing people's stories of secularization or deconversion, I'll also continue to branch out into literature and poetry and politics as I'm able to do. And speaking of politics, I also feel that this particular political moment in the United States can't be ignored. Um, frankly, the disease of authoritarianism and what I've come to think of as proto-fascism is infecting the whole world, not just the United States. If you take a, a, a quick look at politics uh, in the UK, in Western Europe, in Australia, uh, and various other places around the world where we are used to seeing uh, representative democracy, we begin to see the rise of authoritarianism, and it's infecting everything. And at a fundamental level, I don't know what can be done about it. More importantly, and much more closer to home for me, I don't know what I can do. Uh, so I default to reading, <laughs> uh, which I know is, is really helping. <laughs> I, I read mostly history, but also biography, memoir, and philosophy, and I always force myself to uh, insert some literature into that mix and poetry as well. These days, I'm in a fairly nihilistic mood, not a cynical nihilism like Steve Bannon is rumored to be, a sort of nihilism with an evil grin, but more like a resigned nihilism. I don't think things are going to get better anytime soon. I hope I'm wrong, and I'm doing what I can locally to make sure I'm engaged in the struggle, but I'm almost certain we're going to need to settle in for the long night. Which brings me back to the condition of my own psyche, and to one of the main reasons I've stepped back from almost everything, including this podcast. I realize now looking back, that I've been depressed for several months, maybe a year or more even. It's been a good discipline for me to learn to simply go to work and do a good job there to be proud of that work, even if it's managing a bar. It's been difficult letting go of wanting to do something deeper or more significant with my life, but that letting go has been an important bit of learning for me as well. There's something very freeing about just going to work and coming home and not having my identity and self-worth tied up in it. But then the question comes where to ground my identity and self-worth. I've also experienced what I call symptomatic depression or bandwidth depression. It's probably an overworn metaphor, but we all know what bandwidth problems are. You're trying to do some essential research on the internet while your child or partner is gaming or streaming their 34th episode of 30 Rock and the internet just bogs down. It takes forever to do the simplest task. Or imagine uh, being at a large sporting event or a rock concert, and you're trying to post that all-important selfie to prove to all of your friends that you're there having a wonderful time, and it won't post a simple tweet or, or picture on Instagram. Uh, this happened to us at the Women's March. There were millions of people 
crowded into the streets of downtown and everyone was trying to prove that they were there and show some cool photo of signs and people and and uh, the solidarity that we all experienced there. But none of us could really post anything because uh, the bandwidth of our various uh, phone service providers had completely ground to a halt. I found that minds are like that too. At least my mind is like that. There's only so much information and, and stress that our minds can process all at once. Researchers are finding that certain types of stressors like financial stress and se- severe emotional distress uh, affect our mental bandwidth more than some other types uh, of stressors as well. It's okay, I've discovered, to let yourself make essential triaging type decisions. In some cases, I just didn't reply to emails for weeks on end. I didn't listen to voicemail. Texting people back was sometimes an enormous chore. Scheduling time to meet with people felt impossible. I didn't even want to open my calendar. I knew what I had to do to get through a day, and I left the rest for later, knowing or trusting that the world wouldn't end or nothing catastrophic would happen. Perhaps you can relate to that. My experience of depression, I think, is also about the compounding sense of losses in my life. Naturally, most people are probably thinking right now about my loss of faith. Of course, it's that, but it's much more than that. It's, it's what faith means to people, uh, a system for organizing their whole world, Uh, a sense of comfort and and connection to something outside of themselves, something grounding. Um, It helps people organize what matters to them, their ethics, um, their place in the world, and their vocation, or that there's even something that we could call vocation. But life's losses are, of course, more than just having to do with religion and faith, at least they are for me. They represent a loss of a certain relationship with my children, the loss of a stable income, and more importantly, the loss of a certain standing in my community. And by community, I mean literally my community of Los Angeles. It's meant the loss of friendships, which rightly or wrongly were irrevocably tied to my faith community and the role in the city that afforded me. But these, you know, these losses are not unique to me. They're not unreasonable things. People experience this kind of loss all the time, especially people my age. More specifically, these are losses that men my age experience with some regularity. These things don't make me special or make my experience unique, but the impact of these losses, the cumulative impact of them has settled on me in the past year or so in a pretty profound way, and I've felt the need to process them in my own time. I don't think before, as a pastor, I would have allowed myself that space. I would have felt the need to soldier on. I would have expected God to help me with those uh, challenges and losses. But now I feel as though they're mine to shoulder and I need to do them in the way that I can. I was also never trained very well at taking care of myself and it's something I've had to learn to do along this journey as well. Most of the time I simply go around with the pain of these experiences the way a person would go through the day with a low-grade headache, vaguely aware, knowing that it's not that big of a deal, and powering through. But occasionally that headache creeps up behind one's eyes and settles in around the temples, and the otherwise glorious light coming through the windows becomes intolerable. There are people who have helped me think about depression, how to write about it, talk about it, when to write about it or talk about it, and when not to. My instinct is not to write or talk about it at all. 
partly because of stigma and the feeling that nobody wants to hear about it because people will see it as whining. You know how popular snowflakes are these days. And because it doesn't really do any good, it seems to me, to uh, air things like this in public. But talking about something does make it real and takes away some of the strength and power of the experience. And it opens up space for others to talk about their experiences, which I think is at the core of what the Life After God podcast has always been about, creating a space for people to, to wrestle between belief and unbelief. The temptation in all of these situations is either to be overly pessimistic and cynical or to be overly, perhaps obligingly, optimistic. It's difficult to strike a realistic tone, to speak in some ways dispassionately about the thing that is so passionately on our hearts. When I'm depressed, and I imagine I've wrestled with depression off and on for a sizable percentage of my adult life, I tend to retreat into books, or maybe more accurately, into worlds of learning. I feel safe there. History feels comforting in some way. It feels also active. I'm doing something, preparing myself for whatever is coming next. One of the books that I've picked up and put down a number of times in the last several months is a new, a relatively new collection of essays by the poet Mary Oliver. And in this particular essay called Staying Alive, uh, she writes a little bit about her childhood, though these are in some ways essays, which are by definition prose they resemble for me poetry more than anything else. And I want to I actually read a couple of excerpts. She writes, Adults can change their circumstances. Children cannot. Children are powerless. And in difficult situations, they are the victims of every sorrow and mischance and rage around them. For children feel all of these things, but without any of the ability that adults have to change them. Whatever can take a child beyond such circumstances, therefore, is an alleviation and a blessing. I quickly found for myself two such blessings, the natural world and the world of writing, literature. These were the gates through which I vanished from a difficult place. Let me just pause there for a second and make the obvious observation that these things don't always just apply to children, that adults are sometimes also in some ways relatively powerless to change their circumstances. Though Mary Oliver is writing about her childhood, I think for me at least these things makes sense as an adult as well. She goes on. In the first of these, the natural world, I felt at ease. Nature was full of beauty and interest and mystery, also good and bad luck, but never misuse. The second world, the world of literature, offered me, besides the pleasures of form, the sustentation of empathy, the first step of what Keats called negative capability, and I ran for it. I relaxed in it. I stood willingly and gladly in the characters of everything, other people, trees, clouds. And this is what I learned, that the world's otherness is antidote to confusion, that standing within this otherness, the beauty and the mystery of the world, out in the fields or deep inside books, can redignify the worst stung heart. This captures for me in a way I don't think I could ever have expressed why reading and stepping away from the rat race of the world is so important for me and for everyone. A few pages later, she tells this very poignant anecdote. You know, Mary Oliver never really does interviews. You can't really find 
interviews with her and she's very quiet about her personal life, you have to deduce her personal life from her writing and most of her writing is poetry. And so that can be pretty daunting, but she tells this very interesting story uh, a few pages later uh, about her relationship with her father and how she felt as a child. She says, once my father took me ice skating, then forgot me and went home. He was of course reminded that I had been with him and sent back, but this was hours later. I had been found wandering over the ice and taken to the home of a kind young woman who knew my family slightly. She had phoned them to say where I was. When my father came through the door, I thought, never had I seen so handsome a man. He talked, he laughed, his movements were smooth and easy, his blue eyes were clear. He had simply, he said, forgotten that I existed. One could see, I can see even now, in memory, what an alleviation, what a lifting from burden he had felt in those few hours. It lay on him, what that freedom, like an aura. Then I put on my coat, and we got into the car, and he sat back in the awful prison of himself. The old veils covered his eyes, and he did not say another word. What a profound story of what it feels like to be forgotten, and even more so a, a sense of identification with what her father must have felt not being responsible for his daughter for a period of time in a, in a very irresponsible sort of way, reasoning as a child might that uh, she was a burden to him and that's why she was forgotten. And perhaps he did see her that way. She wraps up this sort of uh, poetic expression of her childhood and comes around then to her adult life in the last couple of lines of this essay, and just, I think, for me, expresses how we can go about navigating this um, sort of Scylla and Charybdis of optimism and pessimism, about how to realistically grapple with the losses in our lives and the sense of bandwidth degradation that we all experience from time to time as we're trying to juggle the many stresses of our individual lives to say nothing about the incredibly stressful um, public life that we, at least in the United States, have been immersed in. And, and of course, in so many places around the world uh, where you may be listening to this, the, the stresses of public life uh, are even more outrageous. In fact, I just watched um, White Helmets, the Oscar-winning short documentary yesterday on Netflix. I highly recommend it. Talk about bandwidth issues. I mean, we're talking about a, an entire society of people struggling to just survive. But back to Mary Oliver, I mean, she's talking about her childhood, the way that she uh, immersed herself throughout her life in the natural world and in literature and poetry as a way of finding herself or finding her grounding and her footing in the midst of times where she really wanted to escape from her world and from herself in some cases, as she talks about. But then what to do with that? How do we ground ourselves in a new place? I said a moment ago that part of you know, the struggle and the sense of loss in my own life, and I'm sure, and I, and I know from talking to others and in, in other people's lives, is the sense that things are constantly changing. Um, my relationship to my children, I mentioned a second ago, has significantly changed. That's primarily due to 
the fact that they've grown up, they've gotten older. My oldest is now 16. She'll be 17 later this year. My relationship to her is different. We don't live together full time anymore. That makes our relationship different. And that's hard. That's difficult to, to cope with at times. And the temptation is to want to go back or to find a way to return to a former time and place when life seemed, at least in retrospect, simpler, a kind of nostalgic past. And I'm tempted by that the same way everyone else is. And, and Mary Oliver in these closing lines really, in such economy of words as only poets can do, really grasps and grapples with what to do as life moves on without us. She says, and now my old dog is dead and another I had after him and my parents are dead and that first world, that old house is sold and lost and the books I gathered there lost or sold, but more books bought and in another place, board by board and stone by stone, like a house, a true life built and all because I was steadfast about one or two things loving foxes and poems, the blank piece of paper and my own energy, and mostly the shimmering shoulders of the world that shrug carelessly over the fate of any individual that they may, the better, keep the Niles and the Amazons flowing. And that I did not give to anyone the responsibility for my life. It is mine. I made it and can do what I want with it, live it, Give it back someday without bitterness to the wild and weedy dunes. One of the challenges of forming a worldview and grappling with the pain and loss of life is the sense that nothing matters or that the world doesn't care about us the way we thought it did. We thought maybe there was some kind of moral agency to the universe or that there was some kind of compassion intrinsic to nature in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we held on to this notion that God, which animated the universe and held all the atoms together, that there was a compassionate love at the core of all of that. And what, what Mary Oliver is able to touch on is that one of the most comforting things in the midst of all of this change is that the world doesn't care, that it's the world is better off making sure that the Niles and the Amazons keep flowing, so to speak, but that the world sort of shrugs its shoulders at the fate of any individual. And that by remembering that, by staying steadfast to that truth, we're able to honor our own agency in the world. We're able to not give the responsibility for our life away to anyone else and to claim boldly the choices that we that we make and not apologize for them not feel bad for them and so i've you know i've said before that that i've i'm sorry that i've let the the podcast slip and i do feel a responsibility about it especially to the people who contribute uh to my patreon <laughs> and i will come back to those folks in just a minute but it is it is difficult to not feel like you're letting people down when you make choices to let some things go, at least for a season or maybe permanently. But that's what we have to do sometimes. Those are the choices, the difficult choices that we have to make. And there, as I've often said to myself and to other people in conversation, there's almost no choice in life that's irrevocable. We can almost always 
change those our decisions about things again. We can change course once more and resume things like this podcast that we've let go for a while. We don't have to decide in advance that the decision that we're making now is permanent forever. We can make tentative decisions to do what we need to do to cope with the challenges that we face. I have a friend named Wayne, Wayne Rumsby. We've never met. He lives in Nova Scotia, uh, where right now it's very cold and uh, very different than Los Angeles. We couldn't probably live on the same continent as we do, but further apart than we do. Um, and he wrote really profoundly, gave me permission to share this with you. He ver- wrote, very, very, I think, very profoundly about depression uh, a few days ago on his Facebook wall. And I want to sort of bring this podcast to a close by sharing a few of his thoughts, which I thought were very good. He says, a few thoughts, observations about depression from the horse's mouth, as they say. First, though, my disclaimer. I've chosen to write carefully, I hope, from depression rather than later looking back and trying to recall. I will try not to drag you all the way in, and more importantly, I don't expect you to drag me out. And I just have to say that first disclaimer meant so much to me, maybe more than even the rest of what he's about to say, because it is so tempting when you encounter someone who's not maybe the be- you know doing their best or, or not the way you remember them to try to fix them or say something to them that will snap them out of whatever it is they're experiencing. And I think Wayne says so profoundly, you know, I don't expect you to drag me out. In fact, I, I hear implicit in that a plea to not try to drag him out. He says, so this morning as I walked the dogs and recorded my audio journal, these words came from the depths of my mind. Depression is a state of mind, limiting the range of mental perspective to sad or discouraged. Sad is looking back and discouraged is looking forward. Sad about past failure or loss. Discouraged about how to move forward. To spice things up a little, depression provides shame and fear. So what to do? Well, the first thing is don't ignore it. It doesn't just go away, but don't believe it either. Examine it. Sit with it. Cry if you need to, but understand it's not the whole truth. Fear and shame are not spice. They distort and exaggerate the sad story. So examine, interrogate, thrash if you need to. While depression is often a brain chemistry issue, it seems to me that it also serves a role, like a warning light on the dashboard. There is reason for the sadness or the discouragement, and your mind feels like it's being ignored, so it shuts down all the distractions and focuses on the problem. However, the problem isn't always obvious, nor the solution. Patience. In his own way, Wayne is writing about his bandwidth challenges and reflects what Mary Oliver was saying about finding portals past yourself and the world that is bearing you down. Uh, For him, it was walking his dogs and speaking into an audio recorder. So that's my confession as a lapsed podcaster and hopefully back in the swing of things. Thank you. And, and I really do have to take a minute here at the end and just express my gratitude to everyone who has hung with me in this um, hiatus, this sort of silent period, um, especially, as I said before, my Patreon supporters who have hung in there during these dry months. I cannot tell you how grateful I am. Um, various ones have had to adjust or change their 
support, and which is completely understandable. There doesn't even need to be a reason for that. Um, our lives change, our financial needs change all the time, and and there's never any shame in in changing um, how and when you support people that you care to support. Um, but I also know that I've not held up my end of the deal by providing ongoing podcasts for the most part for the last six months. Um, and so first of all, thank you, um, for sticking with me. Um, I apologize for, um, not providing um, that, but I'm also grateful that these relationships aren't always purely transactional. Um, that there's a kind of, as we used to say in, in, in my church, a covenantal, uh, quality to these relationships. Um, and I do intend to, as it were, make it up to you. Uh, there's some fantastic, uh, podcasts coming and I'll close in a minute with a, a few of those. Um, I also want to thank those of you who helped me replace my computer a few months ago when it was stolen out of my car. Uh, I want to specifically mention a few people, um, by their first name, um, Andy, Lanny, Jeff, and dozens of you who donated to my GoFundMe. Um, I'm happily recording this episode on my new computer. You guys are so awesome, and I'm very, very grateful to you. Uh, I also want to mention Brian Peck, who um, is a faithful and tireless friend who's always giving me space to bitch about my life and not try to fix me. Um, sometimes just offering a slight change in perspective that, that helps me see myself in the world in a little bit different way. Um, he's an awesome, um, friend and, um, he's starting his own therapy practice as we speak. And I hope you will, um, follow him uh, and I'll put a link to his um, stuff in the show notes as well so that you can see what he's up to in his personal time when he's not supporting, uh, life after God. Uh, and also, finally, uh, an appreciative shout out to those of you who uh, did not get an email back from me when you wrote to me um, or you phoned me and I didn't call you back, <laughs> but were patient and gave me space to do what I needed to do. Um, if you're listening to this and that describes you, I would love for you to resend that email if you can find it or just hit me up again Um I would love to do my best to get back to you, though there is, again, um, you know, obviously, even in the best of days, a limit to any person's bandwidth. Um, finally, I want to share with you a quick synopsis of some upcoming episodes. Um, I'm very excited to say that we are going to have uh, Sean Carroll, the theoretical physicist um, from Caltech, on the show uh, in a couple of weeks, um, talking, among other things, uh, about his relatively recent book, The Big Picture. And I think you're going to find that conversation fascinating. I also have a few members of the Life After God Facebook community who have agreed to do um, X-Files conversations and looking forward to sharing a bunch of those with you over the coming weeks. Uh, I have a, a stand-up comic who was raised in the Quiverful um, Bill Gothard cult, uh, who I'm speaking to in a few days. And I've got a few people in mind who can help us think about mm, the religious implications of the current political uh, context that we find ourselves in right now in 2017. So a few ideas there about things that are coming up. I hope that you will 
stay with us. Um, if you don't subscribe to the show, please go to iTunes and subscribe. You can also subscribe at Spreaker.com slash Life After God. And of course, if you want to support our show on Patreon, you can find us at Patreon.com slash Life After God. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram by searching for Life After God as well. Well, thanks so much, you guys, again, for hanging in there with me during this dry spell. I'm excited that the podcast is back, and I'm personally motivated about it again, which I'm super excited about. Uh, so thank you again for your support, your encouraging words, and feel free to reach out to me if you want to or have something you want to share with me. I always love hearing from you, Ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Podcast.